from APM, American Public Media, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. Do you ever wonder why people gesture with their hands while they're talking on the phone? Or why good posture makes you feel more confident than slouching? There is a field of research called embodied cognition that looks at how your body affects your brain. Scientists have long thought of the brain as a control center for the body, a kind of computer that dictates how we move through space. But what if how we walk and gesture as well as how we exercise and even how we type on a keyboard actually changes the way we think? That's what Sion Bylock asks in her new book, How the Body Knows Its Mind. Bylock is a psychology professor at the University of Chicago. She looked at how our physical movements affect our thoughts and emotions in different settings, from school to work to human relationships. Sion Bylock, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So what uh, encouraged you to write this book in the first place? What question were you trying to solve? I'm really interested in how we can think and perform at our best. And we often focus on what happens above the neck, what's happening in the head. But I started reading and in my own research, finding that what we did with our body, our surroundings, our environment, actually had an input on how we thought. Your work is part of something that you identify as the new science of embodied cognition. Can you explain that for us? This idea is that our thinking is based in the systems we use to act in the world, that when we think, it's not just what happens inside the head in the cortex, but we essentially, in a way, think across our body and our surroundings. So, for instance, when I talk, I gesture, and the gestures I produce actually give you information about what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, and they also serve for me as a tool. People, when they gesture, actually can index information on their fingers. It almost serves as an external memory load. So when, for example, someone's giving a speech or having to solve a difficult math problem and they're not allowed to gesture, their performance actually suffers because they don't have their hands to use as a way to hold information in the moment to help them perform. One of the things that researchers have been talking about over the last 10, 20 years is how experts go about developing their expertise and their ability to recognize patterns more quickly than other people because they have had so much experience, so much, you know, so so many repeated times seeing these patterns. And you describe sort of a similar thing that goes on uh, physically with people who become experts at certain kinds of sports or other activities. Yeah, I'm very interested in what happens inside the brains of elite athletes, not only when they're performing, but when they're actually just watching other people perform, other athletes perform. And one idea is that the weekend warrior, the high school football player who now watches on Saturday, might understand that game differently because as he's watching, he's actually playing out some of the moves in his own head, almost as if he's performing them himself. So he can anticipate upcoming moves in a way that a novice, someone who didn't play might not. And so we've done studies where we've actually brought professional hockey players into our laboratory. We've put them in a functional MRI machine, often talked about as a brain scanner. And we actually peek under the hood, so to speak, as hockey players are hearing or watching about other people play hockey. And one of the really neat things that we've found is that when professional hockey players just hear about another hockey game. They hear almost a broadcast of a hockey game. They activate motor areas of the brain, areas of the brain that they would use to act. 
And we think this allows them to better understand what's going on. They can put themselves in the shoes of the player, the skates of the player, so to speak, and actually predict what's going to happen before it does. It's easier to follow. They comprehend it better. And this is something that novices who haven't played hockey don't do. And these are the same neural networks that are implicated in other kinds of expertise, in cognitive expertise? These, what we find for these expert hockey players is they actually activate motor areas of the brain. So an area called dorsal premotor cortex, which we know is really important for planning movement. These are the same types of motor networks that are activated when they themselves would execute the movement. And the idea is that once you have that physical expertise, then understanding what other people are doing becomes easier in a sense because you can actually play out these movements, so to speak, as if you were performing them yourself. But how is this movement expertise, if at all, connected to, or what does it help us understand about other kinds of expertise, of of non-physical expertise, if you will? Well, I will say that most things we do involve physicality. I think we don't realize it. But for example, reading involves physicality. There's studies showing, and studies I talk about in the book, showing that when kids learn to print letters, they're better able to recognize letters. Printing versus just learning how to recognize letters visually, the printing actually wins out in predicting kids' ability to learn to read. So even things that might seem very cerebral or cognitive in nature have a link to our motor system. And I think this is in true, true in all sorts of fields of expertise where you could think about the motor components that might go in to making someone good at what they do and asking questions about whether you could exploit that in a way to help enhance performance. Can you give an example of an area where that might be useful that we're not, that as a society, that we don't do that now? So here's an example. When doctors look at patients, for example, when they assess an older adult, oftentimes they do this while the older adult is sitting in their chair, not moving. And it turns out that having older adults walk down the hall can be a great way to actually predict whether or not there's going to be cognitive impairments down the line. And one idea is that our motor system and the coordinating of all these different components of what we do, that is inherent in coordinating how we think as well. You say that uh, the research is making it really clear that physical activity is good for uh, brain activity, which there are going to be plenty of people out there who are going to say that seems kind of obvious. If you're fit and you're healthy, you know, all of your systems are going to be better. But is physical activity implicated in learning more effectively than if you're in a sedentary state? We know now that there's there's really, I think, very convincing evidence that being physically active at all stages of life is associated with higher cognitive functioning. And this is definitely true in young kids, and it's definitely true as um, in the later stages of life. Physical fitness begets cognitive fitness. But it's also true that being physical can help you learn. So there are studies now showing that giving kids practice moving objects akin to a story they're reading about, a mathematical story, actually helps them understand parts of the math equation that they might not understand. So just as an example, the word each is very hard for students to get in terms of mathematically understanding that each means that every entity that they're looking at gets a certain amount of something. And actually having kids physically act out stories leads to better math performance than when they don't. So, for, exa- for example, the Montessori approach to schooling, which involves a lot of physical activity of moving uh, items around to learn mathematics and other kinds of things, learning how to slice a cucumber, um, those schools have long said that that, act- that physical activity 
increases learning capacity and learning. Is Maria Montessori being, uh, is, was she ahead of her time by 100 years? I think she really was ahead of her time, and I talk about it in the book. I mean, I think physical activity in itself is not a panacea for our educational woes, but there's a lot of research now showing how specific types of activities can enhance the learning process. And so if we think about that work and we can exploit it in an educational context, we're in a much better position to help our students learn and perform at their best. Should I be uh, riding a stationary bicycle while I'm trying to read a a new book like yours? (laughs) Well, hopefully my book's easy enough to digest that you don't have to be at the ultimate capacity of physical fitness. Um, But But I mean, at the moment of actually doing the reading, is it going to be better for me if I'm moving around? So there is work showing that short bouts of exercise right before you do an important cognitive task can be really important. Um, for learning. If you're going to move while you're doing that particular task, it's important that the movements actually be yoked to what you're learning about. So, for example, we often think that you, as kids learning to count or understanding that they need to give, they need to add up in a story how many animals get fed or what amount they get fed in in a story. Um, It's about actually connecting the actions to the numerical equations. And that's different than just moving around aimlessly. It's about using the research, what we know about indexing particular words to actions in a way that can help us. Just as an example, if I say to you, I spilled the coffee, go get a mop. That's very different than if I say, I spilled the coffee, go get a broom. The action in the latter and what you would need to clean up the coffee tells you something very different about what coffee is. It allows you to ground it in a liquid or a bean, which gives you a clarity about this abstract symbol, this word, that allows you then to use it in a way that you might not otherwise. And the goal is to get kids to use actions in the classroom that give them clarity to abstract ideas, add, multiply, subtract, in a way that we can then ground them to what we know how to do. And there's some real research suggesting that this is the case. It turns out the same areas of the brain that control our finger movements also control our ability to understand numbers. But in a lot of public school systems, things like recess, things like art, things like music, other things where you might be moving around, dance, uh, those are Those are things that are getting cut. They are. And I talk about the four R's. We need reading, writing, arithmetic, and recess. And I think the way really to sell this in an age when testing has become so important, when the stakes are so high, is to really show the cognitive benefits of these activities. Of course, these activities are important for creating intellectual diversity, for creating well-rounded kids, for introducing them to the arts and music and physical activity. But if we can also talk about how these activities counterintuitively or surprisingly might actually change how the brain functions to affect learning that then kids can show on whatever measure administrators might be interested in, I think it's a new way to push for the importance of this physical engagement. As you were working on this book, what surprised you or or what turned out to be substantially different than ideas that you had already sort of developed? I think a lot of what I talk about in How the Body Knows Its Mind, some of us practice on a daily basis, whether it's yoga or exercise or meditation. But I was actually surprised at, in the last decade, how much research has come online showing the power of some of these practices. An example that Asian cultures have been touting for centuries is the power of nature to affect 
our self-control, our clarity of thinking. And neuroscientists in the last several years have actually done very controlled studies to show that when students are out in nature, after the fact, they actually are better able to think and reason in the types of ways that are beneficial in the classroom. I noticed as I was setting up uh, this studio to get ready to record, you were looking out through the window to the outside. It's a bright, sunny day. There's some green trees out there. Were you um, getting your brain ready? I was. And actually, before you came in, I was actually outside doing downward dog, but I stopped before <laughs> you drove in the, into the studio. What's downward dog? Oh, it's a yoga pose. <laughs> yeah? How'd that go? Here in the streets of downtown St. Paul. <laughs> I was on the sidewalk. I wasn't in the middle of the street, but it felt really great after a plane flight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Sion Bylock is a psychology professor at the University of Chicago. She's the author of How the Body Knows Its Mind. I interviewed Bylock for the podcast a few years ago about her book, Choke, What the Secrets of the Brain Reveal About Getting It Right When You Have To. You can find a link to that interview at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, find more podcasts about issues in higher education and K-12 education, and browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects. You can also let us know what you think of our coverage. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. We are on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and on Twitter at AMRadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from Lumina Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.